What a blessing it is to sing those praises to our God and our Savior. Well, we've been doing a lot of traveling this summer, right? Well, I mean as a congregation, we've been going to some amazing destinations. So far, we've been to Damascus. We went to Damascus, and that's where we saw Jesus, and we learned that Jesus can and should be the one who redirects the purposes of our life. Also, Bill took us last week to Mount Horeb. That was a, that was a climb, wasn't it? But that was a good trip. But it's here at Mount Horeb that he helped us to see and, and, and understand. It's a place where, where we can contact God and, and see and understand his power. Power that he uses in order to restore us and power that he uses to give care to us. Some pretty amazing places. This morning, Caesarea Philippi. Our destination this morning is, is in a place, a region about 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. In times past, this area that in the time of Jesus was called Caesarea Philippi, was a place where water flowed. And I know oftentimes we think about these areas as being pretty desertous and, 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 and arid, but here the water is flowing. You see, this region is right at the foot of Mount Hermon. And as those snow-capped, that snow-capped mountain in that region, as those snows start melting, they start sending down water. And that water begins to accumulate, and for some reason, one of the places where it gathers and rolls through in abundance is Caesarea Philippi. Uh, one of our members told me after first service that, that she had been there, and it is, in fact, just like this. What a beautiful place it is, full of water, water that is going down and ultimately feeding the Jordan River. But as we go there this morning, uh, we're not really going there to see the beauty, but we're going there to see that this area for a long time has been a place that I'm going to call a place of acknowledgement. That's the key word this morning. A place of acknowledgement. From the oldest of times that, that we have record of, things stated even in the Old Testament, this region was a place early on where people came and they acknowledged Baal. They acknowledged the false god Baal. But it wasn't there, that wasn't the only false god acknowledged there. Over the years, as the Grecian Empire came along, they built shrines, some that have been reconstructed from the ruins in this picture. They built shrines to primarily the false god Pan. And at that time, the city, this area was called Pania, after that false god Pan. But then the Grecian Empire gave way to the Romans, and when the Romans came in, it, it carried on some of these uh, uh, 
areas and, and, and attitudes about worshiping these false gods. But then in the midst of all of this area, there was a temple. A temple that was built in honor of Augustus Caesar. One who wanted <laughs> desperately for others to acknowledge him as a god as well. So you see, this place, this region, for a long time, has been a place where people have come to acknowledge all kinds of false gods. But today, as we go there, we're going to go back to Caesarea Philippi in a time, in a moment, where 12 men are not going to acknowledge all those foreign gods. They're not going to acknowledge even kings or emperors they're not going to state their belief in those things but they're going to state their belief and they're going to acknowledge their faith in someone who is far far greater than all of those so open your bibles if you will to luke chapter 9 we're going to be using luke chapter 9 even though mark records this in chapter 8 and and Matthew records this in chapter 16. And, and I will be taking some parts of those uh, accounts and merging them into some of the things I'm going to be saying here this morning. So let's go there to Mark chapter 9 and begin in verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Who do the people? Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Jesus warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. As you hear this historical account come to life in, in the Scriptures, you quite obviously see, recognize, and have heard that in this story, there are two major questions. Two questions that are driving all that's going on here. And the first question that Jesus asked his disciples, he asked them, who, who do the crowds say that I am? And as he asked them that question, they're going to start, and you heard them there, and if you go to other uh, other gospels, you'll see some additional things. You heard them say, oh, well, the crowds, the people out there, Jesus, they, they say that you're some type of spiritual manifestation of, of Elijah or, or maybe Jeremiah or John the Baptist or maybe some other prophet ha that has come, come to life. That, that's who they're saying you are. And as Jesus hears those, and I, I think as the disciples acknowledges what the crowd is acknowledging that, uh, about Jesus, they know altogether that, that those are the wrong answers, right? 
But then as, as Jesus turns his attention and, and really puts his disciples on the spot, and, and I think for the, uh, the, the purpose of, uh, of, of gaining clarity or, or, or setting uh, uh, a, a distinction between what the crowd is saying and what true disciples would say, he looks right at them and he says, I know what they're saying, but who do you say that I am? And as he says that, he, he again is trying to surface within them and get them to speak and acknowledge that they're looking at him and, and they see him in a way that's altogether different and more glorious and majestic than, than how the crowd is, is seeing him. Understand that, that at this point, it's true. Peter and the other disciples here are still attempting to crystallize in their mind just exactly the full purpose and, and the complete picture of who Jesus is and what his mission is. They, they've yet to grasp all of that. But here's the point. Here's the truth. They have seen enough and they've heard enough and they have experienced enough at this point in time when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? For them to emphatically respond, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That's who you are. But the thing that I want us to see is not only is that such an incredible confession or acknowledgement, but as they say those words, you're the Christ and you're the son of the living God, they're acknowledging some other huge theological and spiritual realities. As they say that, they're essentially saying, hey, we see you and we know you're the Messiah. And that's a huge statement for them to make. Because they're saying, you, Jesus, we know that you're the chosen one. That all the great prophets have been saying is coming to usher in a new and glorious spiritual age for us who believe in in Jehovah God. You're the one the prophets have been talking about over and over and over again, saying that you were going to come and you were going to bring new and glorious spiritual blessings into the world. As they say, you're the Christ, they're saying, we know that, that you're the perpetual priest of God that, that Jeremiah talked about in Jeremiah 31, 31. You're the one who will bring about new covenant relationship between God and those who put their faith in Him. And they, they're talking about that they're seeing Him as the eternal spiritual King of God, who now and will forever reign over all of the nations of the earth for the good of His people. Again, as Jeremiah foretold in Jeremiah chapter 23. But they're also saying, we see you as the Messiah, and we also know, and again, they're still crystallizing some of this understanding, that you're the suffering servant. You're the one that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 53, that would have to suffer and die in order that our sins 
might be forgiven. You see how huge that acknowledgement is, that simple statement, you're the Christ? All of this is, is in back of that. And as they look at Jesus, they see that and, and they're reminded and they're setting forth that we see and believe that you are indeed the Redeemer of God through whom the greatest spiritual blessings of all ages will be realized. But there's something else going on here in this acknowledgement, in this confession. As they say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They're moving beyond this Messiah portrait. And they're moving to something else much greater. As they say that, what they're actually acknowledging is that He is the Son of the living God. They're confessing Him as God among men. I understand while they have elevated him up in this rarefied air of being the Messiah, and rightfully so, when they say you're the son of the living God, they're taking that even beyond this realm, even beyond this earth, and they're saying you are the God. You are God incarnate. You're God in human frame. And you came from heaven to take on the frame of humanity for our blessings. That's what they're meaning when they say, you are the son of the living God. And, and the great thing here about that confession, they're not just spouting this stuff off. Oh, you're the Christ and you're the son of the living God. Is that the answer he was wanting? That's not what they're doing. You see, what they've seen and what they've experienced in Jesus leads them to this point that I'm going to call empirical evidence that he is, in fact, God. This is more than just subjective thinking. They are walking and watching Jesus, and they're seeing God. They're seeing that as, as Jesus commands nature, as, as he's controlling the, the winds and the waves and the sea by his words, they're, they're, list, they're, they're seeing that and they're going, only God can do that. And then as they watch and see his power over the material world, and, and one a, a, a example of how he takes five loaves and, and, and two fish, and, and he turns those into a feast that will feed 5,000 plus people. They're looking at, at, at how he has control and power over this material world. And they're saying, only God can do that. And as they watch him and they see his power to cure every disease and, and, and to change and, and, and uh, 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 rectify every malady that, that the human flesh can suffer and, and even <laughs> to raise people from the dead, they're looking and they're saying, that's, that's only something God can do. And then as they watch and they see his authority over the demons... They see him tell demons where to go and where not to go and what to do and what not to do. As they watch that and witness that, they can't help but come to this same conclusion again and again. Only God can do that. 
You see, this is the evidence before them. And when they say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, they mean you are God among us. We've seen it. We've experienced it. That is their great acknowledgement to Jesus. You're not just only our Savior, but we recognize you and acknowledge you as our God. What a great acknowledgement. And that's a great story, a historical event in, in, in Scripture. But I'm not taking us this morning to Caesarea Philippi for the purpose of just remembering what 12 disciples acknowledged in that city many, many years ago. But I'm taking us to Caesarea Philippi, metaphorically, this morning. Because I want to highlight this fact. All disciples must go to Caesarea Philippi. And when I'm talking about that, I'm not saying, hey, everybody get ready. Pack your bags. We're going we're gonna to jet over to, uh, to that area. We're going to go on this pilgrimage, and what we're going to do is we're going to go up there, and we're going to find Caesarea Philippi, which is not no longer Caesarea Philippi, it's Banus now. We're going to go there, and we're going to somehow find, it, find this marker where it says, hey, this is where Peter stood and made his great confession, and we're going to go there, and we're going to get some selfies, and we're going to send that and put that on Facebook. Guess where I went today? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that we need to and must go to the spiritual Caesarea Philippi. The place where each and every one of us hears the question of Jesus. Every one of us hears Jesus asking us the question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And as we hear that question, we're able to respond and emphatically and boldly, just like Peter and the other disciples, acknowledge him and say, you are the Christ. You are the living Son of God. That's what we all must do to be true disciples of Jesus, to say and to confess and acknowledge before him that, that he's our spiritual Messiah and the divine authority over our eternal destiny. It's the place of that acknowledgement in our lives. But I, what I want you to see here is that when we make that acknowledgement, there are two spiritual movements, important movements that take place and come out of that confession. The first thing is, is that when we go there, when we go to that place, that point in time, when, when we acknowledge that he is 
the Christ, the Son of God. We are taking a bold step away from the crowd. Do you understand? To make that confession immediately separates us out from the crowd. Separation from the crowd. I see it here this morning. I look around and I look into your faces and I know that many of you have been to Caesarea Philippi. That many of you have experienced that point and place in time where you made that acknowledgement. And here's why you did that. It's because you have believed in the testimony of the Holy Spirit of God. You have believed everything that the Spirit of God has revealed about Jesus, and that has allowed you to come to the conclusion that you believe He is the Christ and the Son of the living God. You say, you have heard these words of the Spirit, and you believe that He was with God, and He was God from the very beginning, John chapter 1, right? You believe that, that he created all things and through him all things came into existence. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 and other places. You believe, we believe, that he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, taking on the human frame, having come down out of, out of heaven. We believe that. We believe that, that he overcame every temptation just like we're tempted without sin, Hebrews 4.15. And we believe that he performed more miracles and wonders than could ever be chronicled, John 20, verse 30 and 21, verse 25. And we believe that he redeemed us from sin through the shedding of his blood, and we believe that he rose again and ascended to heaven to be worshipped by everyone, angels and men alike. And we believe that he has gifted us with eternal life and heaven to come, 1 Peter chapter 1. You see, it's because you, it's because we believe these things and so many more that we entered into the waters of baptism, acknowledging with our own mouths, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of the living God. And it was at that moment that we separated from the crowd. It was at that moment that we separated from the crowd who would say, at best, that, yeah, Jesus was... he. he yeah, he was a, a great spiritual teacher and, and supposedly did some pretty, pretty amazing things. And we separate ourselves from the crowd who, at worst, would say, yeah, he, he was just Jesus, yeah. He was just this fictional character created by a group of religious zealots in order to delude the whole world concerning the nature of life and death. That's, that's who he was. But you, you've separated yourself from the crowd. 
and you've said, and you've confessed, and you've acknowledged that you have been taken out of the world of darkness, of sin, and you have been ushered in to the world of life and light through the salvation of Jesus Christ. Wow. What a great moment in your life, in all of our lives. But I want you to go back here as we start to finish up in the next 30 minutes. I want you to go back to Luke chapter 9. And I want you to see another movement is coming here. Listen to the words in verse 23 and following. Right after their acknowledgement, he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. You see, Caesarea Philippi is not only the point of separation, but it is the point of connection. It's a point of separation from the crowd and connection to Jesus as our Lord. As Jesus says, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. As he says those words, he's revealing that with our acknowledgement, with our words, with that confession comes obligation. Are you hearing me? That it's not just something that we say, but it's something that we do. It's an obligation that we have to connect ourselves to Jesus and all of his principles and all of his purposes. Caesarea of Philippi essentially becomes that, that turn in the road where we move off the pathway of self and onto the pathway that connects us with Jesus and the purposes of God. When we make that confession, it's not just separation, but it's connection to Jesus in lieu of self. This is the moment, and, and, and we talked about this in preaching team, and I, I can't even overemphasize it enough. But this moment is the moment that becomes the catalyst for everything else that happens in our life. That moment of acknowledgement now becomes the catalyst for every step that we take daily, day after day, as we try to seek and pursue the nature of God and of Christ. This is a moment that drives our lives. It's where we each day seek to lay aside the old self and all of its sin, and put on the new self created in the likeness of God. That's our obligation, to connect to Jesus in that way. It's the moment where we determine, listen, it's a moment in which we determine, and I know this is hard, but it's true. We determine to abandon 
every spirit of self-centeredness within us and replace it with the spirit of Christ. That's the path we're on. To abandon greed and pursue Christ's generosity. To abandon hurtful and hateful attitudes and actions and pursue Christ's kindness and respect and forgiveness. To abandon sinful fleshly behaviors and to pursue Christ's purity and righteousness. That's the path where we're on. That's the connection we're making to Jesus. It's where self is daily being set aside and more seeking and pursuing to walk step and step with Jesus. Let me close this way. You need to take the trip to Caesarea Philippi. And what I mean is if you this morning have never acknowledged Jesus as your Christ, your Savior, your Messiah, the Son of the living God, I I must urge you, before you go anywhere else, make that your destination today. Confess Him today. Put Him on in baptism today. And then walk with Him through the forgiveness of your sins throughout the rest of your life. If you haven't been to Caesarea and Philippi, today's the day to get your ticket. But for most of you, you've been. But I want to tell you this. I've experienced in my life, and you probably have too, that I think there is a reality that we probably need to make some return visits there every once in a while. Just to remember and just to remind ourselves of the acknowledgement and the confession we've made to Jesus. And let that just continue to spur us on to disconnect from the crowds and to connect and walk with Jesus Christ. Whatever next step you need to make, make it today while we stand and while we sing.